David Lipsky, this is kind of a, a dream come true. In, in a way, you're sitting down with a writer who you obviously admire. You're spending time with him. Uh, is it also a way of vanishing into his work by sitting down with him? Well, yeah, because one of the great things about uh, both about being with him and then reading the book afterwards is it's like um, it's like being in an essay that he's doing live. I mean, it's like being it's like being in his great narrative voice as he's going into a restaurant, as he's going through an airport, as he's going through Mall of America. So it was it was um, it was if you woke up uh, inside one of David's paragraphs. And were you comfortable on this trip with him? Uh, in the beginning, in the beginning, he doesn't. I have the impression he doesn't like me. I get that impression because he turns to me uh, in a pizza restaurant and says, I'm, I'm not sure if you're a very nice man or not. Um, but, yeah, then afterwards, I think um, just we would, you know, as we started driving around more, yeah. There was a sense of, uh, in, in some of the recordings you made, and, and to hear David Foster Wallace's voice right now is, you know, quite extraordinary. Here's him talking with you on this road trip back in 1996 with every bit of the whimsy that you would find on the page. I have this, I, I, here's this thing where it's going to sound savvy to you. I have this unbelievably, like, five-year-old belief that art is just absolutely magic and that good art can do things that nothing else in the solar system can do. Could you see his face when he was saying that to you? Yeah, with a little a little small smile. And also, like, I, I'm so glad you guys used that quote because it's one of the things I think about when I pick up. That's kind of, that's kind of used to the thing you said about whether it was, like, kind of being in a, in a dream. It's like... It's like when you wake up from it, when I pick up books now, I think about things. I hear different things he said, and I'll hear that kind of quote like uh, about art being magic. And um, so it's more – I actually tend to see it more as words on a page because that's how I know him best is as a writer. He seems very vulnerable there. He says it's a five-year-old's notion to think of art as being absolutely magic. But in fact, many, many artists believe that. He just sort of retains this childlike vulnerability about what it is he's doing. Yeah, it's also like the, you may need that five-year-old sense of magic to then go through the – decades and decades that you need afterwards to be able to create the magic yourself. Well, let me just uh, give you a sense of some of the gems. I mean, you can open up uh, to any page in, in Infinite Jest, but this is on, like, page 533. Um, this is a typical scene. David Foster Wallace at his best. Um, each of the women's legs was shorter than the other. How can a leg that's shorter than the other leg have the other leg shorter than it? He was having us on. He said that the point was an AA point, that it defied sense and explaining, and you just had to accept it on face. faith a few lines later. I'm also in another fellowship with almost four years in, the UHID. It's the Union of the Hideously and Improbably Deformed. The Veil is a sort of fellowship comparison. If you don't mind, how come you're in it? UHID? How are you supposed to be deformed? It's nothing that sticks way out. If I can say it, are, are you, like, missing something? A kind of just pure ludicrousness but an intimacy at the same time. Did you, in a way, as a writer, were you jealous of him having the ability to come up with stuff like that? Um, when you when you come across a great writer, yeah, for better or worse, you're a little jealous because um, it's like if you're if you're playing if you're playing uh, NBA ball and you're thinking, yeah, I'm six foot four, I'm six foot five, you know, I, I have a pretty good percentage on my jump shot, and then some guy shows up who's eight feet tall and can dunk without jumping. Um, but then there's the great thing, as as you know, as a writer and as a reader, which is someone who's writing that well and in that newer way is showing you ways that you could do things too. So you become immediately grateful. 
David Lipsky is a contributing editor at Rolling Stone and author of the new book, Although, of course, you end up becoming yourself a road trip with David Foster Wallace. Also with us is Amy Wallace Haven, sister of David Foster Wallace, so, uh, on the line from Tucson. Good morning, Amy. Good morning. So what's it like to hear uh, your late brother's voice speaking so much with that whimsical sense of vulnerability that you get in his uh, writing? Well, it's 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 very strange. Um, I think even if I wasn't lucky enough um, to have access to so many recordings of his voice, um, his voice was was a very um, pleasant voice and very very memorable to me. And he always spoke with a a sort of sense of wonder or exasperation about almost anything. And growing up with your brother must have been like being on a road trip with an amazing writer. We didn't travel in cars well together, really. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it was it, it was never boring. Um, when we were kids, we, we had a fairly intense sibling rivalry, but as we got older, we became very close, and he was just an exceptionally good brother. And certainly a brilliant writer, but someone who was capable, even back in 1996, uh, uh, of talking about his sort of vulnerabilities and uh, the depression that really sort of dogged him throughout his career. David Lipsky, what was going on when uh, David Foster Wallace told you this story? And let's listen to the story first. I decided that I really need to find a few things that I believe in in order to stay alive. And one of them is that this is a, that I'm extraordinarily lucky to be able to do this kind of work. And that along with that luck comes a tremendous obligation to do the best, to do the very best I can. That doesn't make me a great person. It just makes me a person that's really exhausted a couple other ways to live, you know, and really taken them to their conclusion, which for me was a pink room, you know, with no furniture and a drain in the center floor, which is where they put me for an entire day when they thought I was going to kill myself, where they, you don't have anything on and somebody's observing you through a slot in the wall. And when that happens to you, you get tremendous, you get unprecedentedly willing to examine other alternatives for how to live. A casual, rollicking discussion of a very intense moment of depression, David Lipsky. Yeah, we were driving, and he was talking about, um, he was talking about, in a way, how he'd become the writer who could write Infinite Jest. He had, um, when he was younger, he had cared a great deal about how his writing would be received and how it'd be read. And that uh, that was part of what had put him in that room, um, and God, I do. I love that when he's telling that story, that he also then takes it a little bit farther and makes it funny and laughs. I mean, that, that that's what's great about him as a person and as a writer is that he's totally alive to data, and he is he's he's kind of making it his own. He's finding the real live thing that's funny in it. Um, what he's talking about is after that time when he went into McLean Hospital, he kind of burned off a lot of other things he'd been writing for, and then he came out and spent the three years writing Infinite Jest, and he said that he'd. He'd been protecting himself before that by always kind of writing at three-quarters speed the way you would if you had mm. a paper due, like you write the night before, and then if you get a sort of a semi-good grade, you're like, okay, if I'd, if I'd worked a little harder. And he said he was just going to screw it. He was just going to write as well as he could on this book. If it couldn't get published, if people didn't like it, at least he would know that he had worked as hard as he possibly could, and he felt that now he was a writer. Amy Wallace-Havens, listening to your brother's voice there, you know, it seems like he's got it under control, that he's had the difficulty, he, he understands the vulnerability inside him. But with that laughter, it really feels like he has he he has it beat. Did you feel that way? Well, I, I think that um, 
he sounds very jaunty there and as if um, this is something that, that he's done some thinking about and has conquered and has moved away from. And I think at that time, he was feeling very good. Um, he was on medication that was taking care of the stuff that was so dangerous to him physically and emotionally. Um, and, and of course, he just was so relieved and so happy that he'd finished this book and that somebody had published it and that obviously at least a few people were reading it. That, that was a big fear of his, that it was going to be so long and so weird and so much access to his head that it would sort of repel people. <laughs> Although those are, you could almost say those are the blurbs, long, weird, and access to my head, two thumbs up. You know, you, that, that's kind of what the reviews were. It was an amazing moment back then in 1996. I, I'm, wondering, I'm wondering, David Lipsky, if this road trip was also a kind of a disillusionment, that in a sense we may yearn to go on road trips with the writers we admire, but when we do, they leave the page and become something fundamentally different and unrecognizable. Um, I think that'd be true if it wasn't a road trip with David, but like, to me he was... Um to me, he was so much the person I'd known as a reader, and uh, it was like a re-illusioning. I mean, I, I, um, I've been reading the book a lot because I've been, I've been talking about the book a lot since it came out, and just just to be back in the car with him and to be with uh, – it's the same – I mean, it's the voice. It's the voice of, of Infinite Chess, and it's the voice of those essays. No, it was um, the sense of being around this incredibly kind, incredibly funny, incredibly brilliant person is just the sense I get from reading him. So uh, it's almost like a, a double re-illusioning. Although at a certain point he'd about had it with you, right? Well, I think I think a few points he'd had it with me. Yeah. I'd say there were two or three points throughout. I think by the end he was certainly ready for me to pack up and go. But um, and I kept actually trying to make up excuses to hang around. But um, but no, I think um, I think he was ready for me to go at a, you know by the middle, and then once we went into sort of extra innings or whatever, um, I think he accepted that and just you know gently nudged me out as opposed to giving me a full boot. Amy, do you think in the end the magic that he so believed in uh, about his art abandoned him and uh, he ended up taking his own life? That's, that's a hard question. Um, I, I don't think he was believing in magic much um, the summer of 2008. Um, I think that he... He was trying to strike a balance between the writing life, which is um, necessarily a fairly solitary one, and a family life. Um, he, he has a wonderful wife, Karen, and he really loved spending time with her. And one of the reasons he went off of the medication, um, uh, there were some, some scary physical side effects that were starting to manifest, but also just he'd felt good for a long time and um, the medication sort of bloated him a little bit, made him just a little bit irritable, although over the years we'd lost track of that. We thought that was just David, but it was actually part of the medication. And so, you know, on the one hand, he was feeling really good. He felt like like a real adult, which he spent a lot of his um, life, I think, trying to figure out exactly what that meant and trying to get everybody else to think about that um and ultimately when he tried to reconcile the two unfortunately because there was 
a medication that was that was so crucial to the crux of those things um, that that failed, it couldn't work. And um, no, there was he he had no sense of magic or or of hope. Probably the last three months of his life. And certainly, the end of his life is a, a sobering portrait of the power of uh, depression to even conquer a talent as formidable as uh, David Foster Wallace. Amy Wallace Havens, uh, sister of the late David Foster Wallace, thanks so much for being with us. You're welcome. She's on the line from Tucson, Arizona. And David Lipsky, contributing editor at Rolling Stone and author of the new book, Although You, uh, Although Of Course You End Up Becoming Yourself, A Road Trip with David Foster Wallace, a chronicle of those moments you spent with David back in 1996. Let's leave everyone with uh, just this last sort of sense of what he imagined for himself going forward. I wouldn't be so careful about this kind of stuff if I felt very much confidence that I could handle it well. And I'm aware that this makes very good copy and this will be a neat part of the article, but it's also really like, you know, I feel like we've sort of become friends and I understand that. I mean, this stuff, it's, it's really scary. And I think if we were in exactly the opposite situation, you'd be saying a lot of the same stuff. It's great, but it's also it's also really scary at the same time because I've got, a, I've got what I hope is like 40 more years of work in it. David Foster Wallace speaking in 1996. David Lipsky, you want to say something to your friend before we go? To, um, to David. Uh, Anything you didn't say? Um, there's a great thing that uh, that John Franzen said when he was with David a few weeks, uh, about six weeks before David died. He said that uh, I felt grateful that he that he let I felt grateful to him for letting me be there, and that's how I felt uh, getting to spend those five days with David. So thank you. Thank you, David Lipsky. Thanks. It was great being on, John.